The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. There is a table just to the right when you step out there. It's a table representing the persecuted church. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. In fact, if you look at the outline that you received, at the bottom of that outline are two links that I've provided for you for additional information about the persecuted church. We're going to look at Stephen, the first martyr of the church, and tie that into what's taking place in our world today. We're going to begin at the end of the story and then work our way backwards. So I'm reading from Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 51. Stephen said, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised, you know that's not a good conclusion to a sermon. He's coming to the end of a sermon. And he looks at these guys and said, you are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your hearts and ears as you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you now become. You have received the law as ordained by angels, and yet do not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth. But being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears, and they rushed upon him with the one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Luke's custom is to introduce characters and then develop them later in the plot. And he introduces to us this young man named Saul. They continued stoning Stephen. And as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord, receive my spirit, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Father, as we look at uh, Stephen and we look at the persecuted church around the world today, God, help us not to take for granted the freedom that we have right now. The fact that we can walk out of this room without fear. The fact that we can gather right now without fear. The fact that we do not stand afraid of persecution even as we speak. Lord, we take it for granted. I confess I do. So we intercede for brothers and sisters around the world right now who don't have this precious privilege. We intercede for brothers and sisters around the world right now who are incarcerated, who've lost loved ones, who are in danger of losing their own lives. We intercede for them in the name of Jesus. Amen. The most persecuted people in our world today are Christians. Statistics bear it out. Christian persecution is any hostility experienced from the world as a result of one's identification with Christ. According to the Pew Research Center, over 75% of our world's population live in areas with severe religious persecution. Out of those 75% of the world's population experience that the majority of those are Christians. An interesting thing put out by the U.S. State Department last year said that there are 60 countries in our world that fa- where Christians face persecution from the governments that they, uh, the nations that they live in, or surrounding neighbors. If you look at the following graphic, each month 322 Christians are killed for their faith, 214 churches and Christians' properties are destroyed, 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians 
every single month. That's on the second link on the outline that you have right there. You can chase it down yourself. As I was preparing for this message this week on Monday, I received an email from Celestin Musakura, our dear friend from Rwanda, who's spoken here multiple times. In that email, he talked about the persecution of the church in Sudan, one of the churches that Alarm is partnered with there. That church was on this week, on, on last Saturday, was burned to the ground, as well as an adjoining medical facility, as well as a pastor's home, as well as two other homes of those within the church. That's just this week. Last night I was reviewing my notes. As I was reviewing my notes, my son texted me and he said, uh, Dad, have you read uh, this link? And it was an NPR link. And on that link was the fact that if you saw the headlines today, you can see that a a guest house in Afghanistan was attacked by the Taliban, murdered inside the guest house were two Christian missionaries. They'd been targeted by the Taliban. Last month, one of the single ladies that TBC has supported that actually uh, her family grew up as part of TBC, uh, missionaries, we, she was living in a city in the Middle East, and that particular city there was attack against some of her missionary co-workers. Two of them were murdered. She had to flee from that city. In this past couple of weeks, she's returned back to the city, and she asked for us to pray for her safety and for the furtherance of the gospel. That's just within the last two or three months. We live in a world that's hostile towards believers. We live in a world, in fact, if you look at the following chart, you can see it much closer if you go to the links there. If you look at this particular graphic of the, of the map of the world, it, you see on the, the, the darkest red, extreme persecution against believers. Then it becomes all the way down to moderate persecution of believers. Many of those in the 1040 window, you're well aware, 1040 window, the most unreached people group. And uh, this is a place where believers experience some type of persecution in our world today. About four years ago, Bev and I had the high privilege of going to China uh, on a mission trip, or actually a vision trip with OMF. I've had the privilege of serving on that board for 15 years before I rotated off last year. Uh, China Inland Mission was founded in 1865 by Hudson Taylor. It's morphed into an organization called OMF. And uh, we went to China, visiting several cities in China on a vision trip, meeting with our missionaries throughout China. The first province we went to, we were not allowed to mention the name of Jesus. We were not allowed to speak openly of spiritual things. We couldn't even bow our head in prayer at the table of the restaurants that we went to because the people hosting us could possibly be persecuted after we left. We met with four Christian sisters, four young ladies who were recent university graduates four years ago. They had all given up careers in various places to go to a boarding school where they were teaching high school students who were sent from various regions of China. And they knew that if they went there, they had the opportunity to talk about Jesus to these students off campus. Couldn't do it on campus, but off campus. But they risked persecution. They risked imprisonment. They risked losing their jobs if they were found out. It's just in the last couple of years. Voice of the Martyrs is one of the organizations mentioned there. Uh, They have multiple videos about various people who have undergone persecution in recent years. This is the story of a young lady named Sarah. Sarah is currently in America speaking. She was in prison for a number of years, and you'll see from her video why she was in prison and what's happened. Terry, let's look at that video.
。那时候我正在编辑《地下教会》的杂志，但我并不知道怎么去面对那天晚上的考验。圣经上告诉我说。I have read this many times, but tonight I would be very afraid. The soldiers do not ask questions. They have a document for me to sign. It is a confession and a statement against my friends. I refuse to sign. And silently pray the night will go by quickly. Time has begun to slow. I begin to wish I have signed the document. I cry out to God to give me strength. And wonder how much more I can endure. Hours have passed when I notice the footprints on the floor. They are my footprints, and they have been made from walking in the trail of my own blood. I think of Christ. And how he was beaten before walking to Golgotha. How he must have also left a trail of his own blood. He also was hated by this world. In a small way, I now suffer for him. I am not alone. I am with Christ, who walked this path for me. And this gives me the courage to go on. That she would be making Christmas lights. Not amazing. Six years in prison because of her faith. The good news about China right now is that the doors of China opening. More Bibles were printed in China than any nation in the world last year. Isn't that amazing? To God be the glory. Amen. And the doors are opening. There are more believers in China right now. When missionaries were booted out in the 1940s, we estimate there were somewhere between four to five million Chinese believers. Now we think there's somewhere between two to three hundred million Chinese believers right now. The underground church is exploding. The gospel is advancing. You can kill the messenger, but you can't stop the message. The message continues. All this persecution started in Acts chapter six. It started with Stephen. Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church. The, the accusation against Stephen is very strong. 
uh, Stephen stands up and they tell us a little bit, the scriptures tell us a little bit about who Stephen is. Back in chapter 6, verse 8, it says Stephen was a man full of grace, full of power. He was performing wonders and signs among the people. Stephen was out among the people and everybody became jealous in Judaism. And the result is some men from the synagogue, the freedmen, that's former slaves who are now free. There are a bunch of names listed there or places that they're from. They stood up and they argued against Stephen. Stephen is bold. He argues back with them in verse 10. It says they were unable to cope with Stephen's wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So what do they do? They secretly induce other men to lie about Stephen. They say, you will say you have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they start up the people, start up the elders, start up the scribes. They dragged them away, brought them before the Sanhedrin, that's the council, and they put forward the false witnesses. Then these false witnesses said, this man incessantly speaks against the holy place and he speaks against the law. So basically what happens is Stephen boldly proclaims his faith in Christ and who Christ is. In the midst of doing that, these freedmen cannot stand against him because Stephen is a man filled with God's spirit and filled with God's wisdom. So just like in the case of Christ, when he was resurrected, Matthew chapter 28, we read how the temple priest brought in the guards and said, you must say that his disciples came and stole the bodies at night. They had to fabricate, fabricate a lie about our Savior's resurrection. Likewise, they're fabricating about Stephen what he had said. And so they said, you must go and say, he's always speaking against, look at verse 11, Moses, if you write in your Bibles, underline that, he's speaking against Moses, he's speaking against God, in the end of verse 13, he's speaking against this holy place, that's the temple, he's speaking against the law. And so he said, he's speaking against Moses and the law, against the holy place, against God. Basically, they're saying this man is a blasphemer. By the way, blasphemy, if you were convicted of it, meant you would be stoned to death and you would be killed. And so they're saying the aroma of death is all over Stephen from the beginning of this section. The aroma of death is strong as Stephen is falsely accused. Blasphemy against Moses, blasphemy against God meant that he would be killed. In verse 12, he is seized and he's dragged away. The word dragged away in the Greek text it says to, it means to, to seize with violence. There's a mob mentality here. They are whipped into a frenzy. They are out of control. And the, the one accusation is he speaks against the holy place. He speaks against the temple. He speaks against the place that, 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 that is the, the high place of worship in all of Israel. In fact, if you look at verse 14, we've heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place, the temple. He's going to alter the customs that Moses handled down. And so they look at Stephen and say, you're here to cause problems. You're an insurrectionist. You, you, you're going to destroy the temple. Do you remember where you were on 911? Do you? Remember where you were? I, I, I can remember just like it was yesterday. All of us can. And you remember that feeling you had when that second plane came crashing into the second tower? And you realized our nation was under attack. You realized that one of the places that we revered as a nation, the Twin Towers, one of the places that stood, places that stood for finance and business, one of the meccas of America was being destroyed and some enemy was coming after us. Remember that feeling? feeling of being violated? The, the feeling of our, our nation now must go to war? If you take that feeling and multiply it times a thousand, that's what Jews would have felt if you told them the temple was going to be destroyed. You see, the temple was the center of worship, of religious life. It was the center of power. It was the center of finance. It was the center of all of Israel. 
And when someone stood up and said, the temple's going to be destroyed or I'm going to destroy the temple, then all of a sudden you recognize what a great statement that was. They had accused Christ of the same, same thing. Obviously, Christ never said he would destroy the temple. He said the temple would be destroyed, not that he would do it. In fact, in John chapter 2, he said, uh, Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He didn't say, I'll destroy it. He said, destroy this temple. Somebody destroy it. Uh, it and they said, it's taken 46 years to build it and you're going to rebuild it in three days. But the temple he'd spoken of was his own body. So he's using the physical temple as a metaphor of himself. He's saying, my body, my temple will be raised up. But later on, he spoke of the physical temple as well. Jesus left the temple. He's walking away when his disciples came up to him, called his attention to to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he said, referring to the temple? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Did Christ say he's going to destroy the temple? Do you read that anywhere in there? Christ did not claim he was going to destroy the temple. He said it would be destroyed, and when that happened, nothing would be left to it. By the way, history tells us or shows us in 70 AD the very thing that Christ prophesied did take place when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many witnesses came forward, and finally two came and said, this fellow, referring to Jesus, said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So over and over they have claimed that Christ said he's going to destroy the temple. He never said that. He he said, if the temple is destroyed, I'll raise up in three days, referring to his body. And he said, one day the temple would be destroyed, not that he would, but somebody else. So their only way they could accuse Christ was false accusation of false witness. Same thing with Stephen. They have to raise up false witnesses and say, this guy incessantly talks against God, he talks against Moses, he talks against the temple, and he talks against the law. He speaks against all those things. The response of Stephen's uh, of Stephen towards his accusers is found beginning in chapter 7, verse 1. It's really too bad there's a chapter break here. As you know, there are no chapter breaks in the original text. I mean, this is continuous action. The chapter break is rather unfortunate for us because it makes it look like there's time between, but it, it, that's not the case. It says in verse 15 of chapter 6, they were fixing their gaze on Stephen. All who were sitting in the council saw his face like that of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And then Stephen, beginning in verse 2, gives the longest sermon in the book of Acts. In fact, he does a walk through the Bible. You ever been through a walk through the Bible? That's what Stephen does. He starts all the way back with Abraham, and he walks us all the way through the building of the temple. And his sermon is absolutely amazing. I mean, there are times when I'm preaching, my sermon is anything but amazing. I can tell you that. There are times I'm up here just dying. I I can remember thinking multiple times, I wish that guy would shut up and it's me who's talking. (laughs) One time I had a lady come to me and she said, Pastor Gray, you you may not realize it, but you have the gift of healing. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I had insomnia all week. I couldn't sleep. I sat in your sermon. I was healed right there. Boom. I got pulled over one time by a uh, temple police officer, one of temple's finest. I love the policemen in our community. A lot of them are here today. And uh, he pulled me over, and uh, he he was getting ready to give me a ticket. And I said, Officer, I I really can't afford that. I'm just a poor preacher. He said, I know. I heard you last Sunday. (laughs) That's not Stephen's case. This is a sermon that ended up with his death. It's a riveting sermon, and really the sermon has three parts. It has three parts. He takes three sacred cows of Judaism and he butchers them. 
He butchers them right before the Sanhedrin and everybody else gathered. You see, the nation of Israel thought because that they were blessed with land, they were blessed with the law, and they were blessed with the temple, they had found favor with God, and so everything was okay. They were part of the Abrahamic family. They now possessed the promised land. They had the law given to them, and they had the temple. Certainly those were advantages, but they needed faith, and they forgot about that. And so really, we could do two things here. We could take the next three months and go through Stephen's sermon, or we can take the next three minutes and go through it. So we're going to take the next three minutes and go through it. And Stephen's sermon can be broken down this way. In verses 2 through 36, he preaches about the land. 2 through 36, he preaches about the land. He says Abraham was blessed before he entered the land. And he talks about that beginning in verse 2. Hear me, brothers and fathers, uh, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said, depart your country and your relatives and come to the land that I'll show you. So Abraham was blessed way before he ever entered the promised land. And he develops it further. And he says in verse 8, He says, Abraham became the father of Isaac, circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob, Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph. They went to Egypt, and they were rescued there. He said the the patriarchs all experienced God's blessing outside of the what? Help me. Outside of the land. Okay? He said, so Abraham was blessed outside the land. The patriarchs were blessed outside the land. And then he talks about Moses. When Moses, if you drop all the way down to verse 33, we read that section that's very familiar to us from the Old Testament. The Lord said to him, take off the sandals from which your feet, for the place of which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I've seen the compassion of my people in Egypt. When God spoke about Moses being on holy ground, he was not in the promised land. He was in the land of Midian. And, and so he's saying, holy ground is wherever God is. Indeed, you are blessed to have the land that God has given you, but it doesn't mean you're right with God. It, does, it means God has given you favor, but that favor must have faith. And so he takes the first sacred cow and he butchers it. And he says, you have placed your faith in the fact that you have favor from God rather than placing your faith in God. And then he takes a second sacred cow in verses 37 through 45. He begins his argument in verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. And so you focus on the law, but what God said to focus on is the coming prophet. One day a prophet like me will come. That prophet ended up being the righteous one whose name is Jesus, but you wouldn't obey him and you wouldn't obey them back then. And so the result is you have placed your trust in the law. You've placed your trust in your favor with God and you don't have faith in God. And then finally, he turns to them beginning in verse 46. And he says, David asked to build the temple. God didn't let him. So Solomon built him a house. Verse 48, however, if you write in your Bible, circle the word however. In verse 48, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. And then he quotes from Isaiah 66. He says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Uh, What kind of house will you build for me? And the point that he's making is God cannot be confined to a temple. You think you're in right standing before God because you live in the promised land, you've been given the law, and you have the temple, you're wrong. Right standing with God comes by faith and faith alone. They had placed their trust in all these things rather than God. You know, as I was 
typing out my notes for this and thinking about what to say, I thought it often sounds like our nation too. That we are favored by God, no doubt. We, we have been blessed by God, no doubt. We, we live in a land filled with promise. We, we, we live in a land where we don't worry about persecution when we walk out these doors. Sometimes we place our faith in the land rather than the Father who's given us the freedom to be in this land. And we hold our hands in our hands this book. Those four university, those four university trained school teachers Bev and I met with in China, they showed us in the, they had an apartment in the, in the school that they taught at. They had to hide their Bibles so that the authorities came and, and they had their room searched on a regular basis. They wouldn't find their Bibles. Any of you going to hide your Bible today? No. And sometimes we place our faith maybe in the wrong things rather than in the living God. There were three sacred cows in Israel, the land, the law, and the temple. And they felt because they had favor from God, that was enough. And he's saying, no, you must have faith. That faith is what saves you, nothing else. And for us, Christ has paid the price of that redemption. Looking back, we can see what he's done. And so our faith, our faith must be in him. You can be sincere, but if you are sincere about the wrong thing, you'll inherit eternal life apart from Christ. I mean, you can be sincere. There are a lot of folks that are going to say, well, you know, the good Buddhist, they're sincere. The good Muslim, they're sincere. The good Hindu, they're sincere. The, 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 the good, you fill in the blank, whatever it is. And the reality of it, if the object of your faith is not the Savior, it doesn't matter how sincere you are. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can be sincere, but if you're sincerely wrong, there are eternal consequences to pay. And some of you will chafe at that because we live in a world of tolerance, a world where everybody's to be included, a world where we want universalism to take place, where everybody is in. But why would Christ, the Son of God, inhabit our planet, give his life, if there's any other way to the Father except through him? What a waste. But if Jesus is the way, if he is the truth, if he is the life, there's only one way to the Father, and that's through the Savior. Have you trusted him? So Stephen looks at these guys, and he responds to them, and he issues an accusation. The part that I read in verse chapter 7, beginning in verse 51, he said, You men are stiff-necked. You men are uncircumcised in your hearts and your ears. You're doing what your fathers did. You've killed the prophets and now you've killed the righteous one. By the way, this is reminiscent. It's reminiscent of the parable of the vineyard where Christ talked about how men were sent into the vineyard and they were killed and only the son of the vineyard owner was sent in and they murdered him as well. He's saying, that's what you have done. You've murdered the righteous one. You've killed him. You've murdered the righteous one who has come. And then we see their response to Stephen. 
their response in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the quick. They begin gnashing their teeth. It, you, you know it's not a good sermon when the people out there begin gnashing their teeth to you. You know that you're in trouble, and that's exactly what happens here. But Stephen was full of the Spirit. He looks up, and he saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Does that sound unusual to you? I mean, what's the usual posture of Jesus at the right hand of God? I mean, when you think about it, what, what, what do the scriptures say over and over? He does what at the right hand of God? He sits at the right hand of God. This is the only time in the scriptures it talks about him standing at the right hand of God. Standing is a position of welcoming. Here is the Lord Jesus in heaven welcoming the first saint who's giving up his life on his behalf. I can remember when I was a kid, one of the great things that we used to love to do was uh, go visit our grandparents in the country. I was a city boy in New Orleans, and uh, when we would go to the country where my grandparents and my mom's side lived, they had a farm out there, and and it was always special. What we'd love to do, uh, there was not a, another house within a quarter of a mile of them on either side, so you pull up in their driveway, we'd honk the horn. And as soon as the horn honked, you could see through the windows my grandpa started standing up. He was 6'3", about 220, a farmer and a woodsman. And whenever Grandpa Khan was his name, uh, I never did. I hope he was not. I don't know how he got that name. Doesn't sound good from up here. His real name was Byron, but they called him Khan, I guess. Well, anyway, but... But I can remember him standing up as a little kid. What you do, you go running up, and he just grab you. Be standing up waiting for you. Here's our Savior. Standing up. Waiting for his son to come home. This one who was giving his life on his behalf. And Stephen, reminiscent of our Savior, says, Receive my spirit. Stephen, reminiscent of the Savior, says, Don't hold us against him. He made him even more mad when he says in verse 56, if you write in your Bibles, underline Son of Man. Behold, I see the heavens and open up the Son of Man standing at the right hand. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him. Why that impulse? Why that mob mentality? You see, the terminology Son of Man was messianic. They knew that Stephen was saying, the Messiah is the one you've killed. You've gotten rid of the Messiah. It comes out of Daniel. I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, all the peoples, all the nations, all the languages. You see, the Son of Man would be the one who would receive the kingdom of God. And when Stephen stood up and said, this is the Son of Man you've crucified, all of a sudden the next verse they cover their ears and they rush at Stephen and they pick up stones to kill him because they know he's saying, you have taken the life of the Messiah. Jesus says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as his own. You don't belong to the world. I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. See, in our day and age, we want the good life now, as the title of the book says. Jesus says, don't be surprised if you suffer for my sake. It was James who says, consider it pure joy when you face trials. It's Peter who said... Don't be surprised at this fiery ordeal as though it's come on you to test you as though it's something strange. Rejoice that you can participate in the sufferings of Christ. 
You can kill the messenger, but you can't stop the message. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said the call to Christ includes the call to suffer. You can kill the messenger. You can't stop the message. When I was invited to go on the OMF board, China Inland Mission had morphed into OMF. I was to be interviewed as a potential board member, and they sat me in a library and said, if you'll wait here, the board members will meet in here, and they'll interview you. So I sat down in this library, and I looked, and the first book that I saw, the spine of that book said, Martyrs of CIM from 1865 to 1900. And I bowed my head and thought, what in the world am I doing here? What am I doing here? Brothers and sisters who gave their lives in China from 1865 to 1900. And I sat there, just bowed my head and said, God, I'm so out of place here. Muckety-muck of the evangelical churches on this board. I'm looking at a book filled with martyrs. (laughs) And I'm safe and secure. Just like you are. That's not something to be ashamed of. It's something to be grateful for. And in our gratitude, we should also be bold because we have a freedom to talk about our Savior. One of the places where persecution is prevalent right now is northern Nigeria. If you've been following the news at all, you know that northern Nigeria is a hotbed. Muslims have been killing Christians there for a long time, the last few years. Watch this final video. I've never been protected from my church. Six of them went to church. My dad, my mom, and children were four. We sing praises. We pray for the peace of the nation. Then we pray for those persecuted Christians. During the prayer section, when the attack happened, we started hearing the function.
was thinking that maybe so many people would die in the church. Everybody was crying, shouting. I started feeling some pain. I was shivering. It was cold. I did not realize it was a bullet that spilled through. I saw people on the floor. Some are dead and some are crying. There's blood around them. Their bodies. I shouted Jesus. That was the only thing I had. Some people shouted Jesus. My younger brother shot him on the chest. His name is Gideon. And he died at the age of 10. I think they are 18 people that they are shot. And two of them are dead. I saw my father bleeding seriously, both from the thigh. He's always kind. Always tell us to read the Bible and be close to God. And that was the last time I spoke. It's not dead. Definitely one to your first sisters around the world who right now who right now struggle for freedom brothers and sisters who've lost loved ones dear friends who spent time separated from family and friends because of their faith God thank you for the freedom we have help us not to take it for granted help us to be bold in our testimony of Jesus in his name Amen. You're dismissed.